This morning, Obadiah, this is the word of Almighty God. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord. And a messenger has been sent among the nations saying, Arise and let us rise up against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be greatly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though you ascend as high as the eagle, and though you set your nest among the stars, From there I will bring you down, says the Lord. If thieves had come to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be cut off. Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If grape gatherers had come to you, would they not have left some gleanings? Oh, how Esau shall be searched out. How his hidden treasures shall be sought after. All the men in your confederacy shall force you to the border. The men at peace with you shall deceive you and prevail against you. Those who eat your bread shall lay a trap for you. No one is aware of it. Will I not in that day, says the Lord, even destroy the wise men from Eden, the understanding from the mountains of Esau, Then your mighty men, O Taman, shall be dismayed to the end that everyone from the mountains of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. For violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. In the day that you stood on the other side, in the day that strangers carried captive his forces, when foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, even you were as one of them. But you should not have gazed on the day of your brother, in the day of his captivity, nor should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. You should not have entered the gate of my people, In the day of their calamity, indeed, you should not have gazed on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. You should not have stood at the crossroads to cut off those among them who escaped, nor should you have delivered up those among them who remained in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord Upon all the nations is near. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your reprisal shall return upon your own head. For as you drank on my holy mountain, so shall all the nations drink continually. Yes, they shall drink and swallow, and they shall be as though they had never been. But on Mount Zion there shall be deliverance. And there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, 
and the house of Joseph a flame, but the house of Esau shall be stubble. They shall kindle them and devour them, and no survivor shall remain of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. The south shall possess the mountains of Esau, and the lowlands shall possess Philistia. They shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Benjamin shall possess Gilead and the captives of the, their host. This host of the children of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. The captives of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the south. Then saviors shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The grass withers, the flower fades, this word of our God endures forever. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this, your word. And though it is hard at times for us to stomach, We pray that it might make us wise unto salvation. Lord, especially if any here today are not true believers, we pray that you will use this word by your spirit to draw them to Christ. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We began looking at Obadiah last week. I said there were two major themes I want you to draw out of the book. And we began looking at the first one, the most explicit one last week, that the day of the Lord will bring judgment on all nations, especially seen in verses 15 and 16. All nations, all nations, whether they acknowledge the existence of God or not. All nations, whether they acknowledge the lordship of God or not. Whether they acknowledge the rights of God to speak about their lives and rule over them or not. Obadiah makes clear, all nations shall be judged on the last day. And he uses uses a specific example in his own day to make this point to us about the last day. We began looking at it last week with Edom, and we focused on the pride of Edom, various types of pride displayed, especially in the first nine verses. And we also noticed what verse 15 makes clear, that God... God will, in his judgment, there will be a divine irony. I don't think I phrased it that way last week. A divine irony in God's judgment. They will be judged according to their works. We saw that each of the areas of sinful pride and arrogance that Edom had that caused them to rise up in their own hearts against the Lord are the very things that will fail Edom and through which God will bring judgment on them. We're going to see some more of those examples today, that divine irony in a a very fair judgment. I think, though, we can also see something specific in today's portion, verses 10 
through 14. That Edom is not only an example of a nation, but also targets for us a particular type of nation and specifically a particular type of person. We have personal names being used here and personal names to draw us to this. That even the one who has been a part of the people of God in outward form and outward words or outwardly by family and has abandoned that covenant God, even that one will be judged on the last day. There will not be this this exception to the rule. Well, if you worshipped vain idols, you will be judged on the last day. But if you grew up in a Christian home, you might escape even if you're not a true believer. No, Obadiah is making it clear, and we'll get to this in this sermon, I hope, that even the apostate, a big word that means one who leaves the faith, will not escape the day of judgment. There won't be a partial salvation. It won't be as bad for you, for those who have outwardly looked like they're in the faith. So let's look at verses 10 through 14 this morning. And the first thing I want you to notice here is the use of names. Obadiah is, as declared in verse 1, a statement against the nation of Edom. But unless I missed in my count, maybe I skipped over one, but I think the name Edom is only used twice in this prophecy. But notice that the name Esau is used seven times. Esau, the son of Abraham, the brother of Jacob, Jacob the one also known as Israel, from whom the twelve tribes were born. Esau, the older brother, the son of, I said the son of Abraham, but I meant the son of Isaac. Gracious of you not to all outcry, because I know your Bible knowledge is better than that. The son of Isaac, firstborn son, the one who had the rights to all the best privileges of being in a covenant with God, right? He is the epitome of one who from the outward perspective was part of the visible people of God, the family of covenant. And he turned from it. And from him comes the nation of Edom. Now that was over a thousand years before Obadiah was written. And as far as I can tell, maybe I'm wrong, but as far as I can tell, the Edomites didn't walk around saying, we're the sons of Esau. That, that wasn't something they boasted in. So for a thousand years to have passed, remember where your ancestors were a thousand years ago? Do you know the name of any of your ancestors from a thousand years ago? We, we Americans think it's pretty good when we can say, you know, I, I can say of my wife and my children that they're, what is it, 13th generation from uh, a guy who lived in 
in the Plymouth colony here. That wasn't a thousand years ago. It wasn't even remotely close to a thousand years ago. So why does Obadiah keep emphasizing this name that they don't go by themselves and was over a thousand years ago? He's making a point to God's people about the danger of covenant unfaithfulness, which is just a technical way to say of turning from the one living and true God. Esau turned from the one living and true God. And will his judgment, because he was part of that covenant family, will it be less on the day of judgment than pagan kings? No, it will actually be more severe. It will be a stricter judgment. That's what we find in the text. Now, how can the nation be held to this stricter judgment when they haven't claimed the one living and true God, for a thousand years. How can God here emphasize that their sin is the sin of Cain? God doesn't use the word Cain here, does he? But the sin of Cain, remember the sin of Cain? He butchered his brother. And then had the gall to say to God, Am I my brother's keeper? Obadiah is emphasizing that the sin of Edom is pride. Yes, we looked at that last week in a general sense. But specifically, Esau will be judged for what it did to its brother, Israel. The nation. God, a thousand years after Esau had left the faith, still required his people to treat the Edomites like brothers, not in the sense of pretending they were right with God, not in the sense of Israel pretending that their religion was just as valid, but they were to treat them as unsaved brothers. They were not to fight and destroy the Edomites when they came into the promised land after all those hundreds of years. And the Edomites knew that God had put that brotherly protection on them. They knew, didn't they? Joshua and the army came in. How much quarter was given to the Canaanites? Wasn't supposed to be any. How much quarter was given to the Philistines? How much were the Amorites allowed to just be treated as neighbors and left alone. God said, none of that. Go to war with them. All out war. What did God say about Edom? Because of Esau. Do not fight with them. Don't pick a fight unless they attack you. Edom knew that they had special treatment from Israel or they were supposed to. Now, Israel failed number, numerous times to obey God in this way, but Edom knew that there was supposed to be this difference. And God is saying, you're being judged as a brother. Look at what he did to his brother nation. Verse 11. 
They committed violence against Judah, how? By standing afar off. That is, when Babylon came against Jerusalem, the Edomites had allied themselves with Babylon and those other allies. They were a little army. They didn't actually go and fight against Jerusalem, apparently. They just watched as it happened. They were a silent partner. They stood by at the borders and let the Babylonian army do it. The Babylonian army didn't need the Edomites. They didn't care. But they just stood there and watched. God calls that violence against one's brother. Verse 12 shows us that it wasn't just a standing afar off saying, well, what was I supposed to do? We're small. We couldn't have done any good anyway, and it just would have hurt our own children. So what could we do? Are we our brother's keeper? No, that would have been bad enough, but verse 12 shows us that this violent sin isn't just standing afar off, but from a distance, (laughs) gloating and mocking and celebrating the downfall of their brother nation. They mocked, they scorned, they rejoiced. They got the balloons ready for the Babylon Day Parade. But it didn't stop there even. Verse 13, then once the Babylonians had pillaged Jerusalem, they went in and pillaged too. Now you might remember that last week in verse 5, we saw God in his threats against Edom saying that their judgment would be so complete there'd be nothing left over. He used imagery. He said, if a thief broke into your house, they would steal until they got what they needed and then they would leave the rest of your junk. They'll take the jewelry and the money box, but at least they'll leave you the throat throat pillows or whatever those things are called. They'll, They'll leave some sandwich meat in the fridge. A thief doesn't come in and take the bed that you're sleeping in in the middle of the night. And he said, but I'm, I'm going to leave Edom bare. There won't be anything there. Look at that region today. Look at Petra and everything surrounding it. Oh, there's nothing left of Edom there. Even Petra can't be claimed by Edom. That was someone else's magnificent achievement. But you see, part of the irony of verse 5 and God judging them that way was that it was a fair judgment. Edom went in after the Babylonians had pillaged Jerusalem and they took everything that was left. In fact, you can even think of looting in another sense. After taking everything that was left in Jerusalem, they also, during that time of Israel's captivity, took part of Judah as their own territory. We're just going to move in. Take these cities we did not build. Take these homes we did not build. The irony is that once they'd done that, someone else went in and took Edom. And then when the Babylonians, well, the, the Medes and Persians, sent Israel back to Jerusalem, where did the Edomites have to go? When the Jews were back in the promised land and the Maccabees came with their strength, they destroyed what was left of Edom. 
And the only Edomites that remained were a few families that married in to Judah. One of which, of course, was the family of the great Herods, who reigned later. But by 70 AD, even that family was wiped off the face of the planet. There are not Edomites in the world today. But there are Jews, aren't there? The irony of God's judgment, both on his people who are persecuted and on those who attack them. And then not only did they pillage, verse 13, but verse 14, the most wicked, violent part of what Edom did against its brother. It might not have engaged in the actual pillage of Jerusalem, the attack on Jerusalem, but they stood at their borders. And when those few refugees escaped the Babylonians, those few people who had the foresight to escape the city and hide in a cave or in the woods when Jerusalem was being destroyed, when they tried to sneak out at night and cross the border, maybe to escape to Egypt or maybe to escape somewhere else into the wilderness, the Edomites were waiting and they slaughtered them at the Jordan River. And those that they didn't kill at the Jordan River, they captured and cheerfully handed over to the Babylonians. Violence against the brother. But Obadiah also tells us this. That God's people, the brother who has been attacked, will take a part in the judgment of the wicked brother. We have to be really cautious here because we still have sin, which means we still have vindictiveness. But Obadiah does show us that in some way, on the last day when we see Christ face to face and we are like him, therefore we have no more sin, he will use us in the judgment of the apostate who turns from the faith. We see this in two, past, uh, two verses of Obadiah. Verse 18, very powerfully, that Jacob and Joseph are like fire. And on that day, they will burn up the stubble that is Edom. Or in the final verse, that the Savior shall come to Mount Zion to judge the mountains of Esau. We'll have to engage with that next week. Who are the saviors? What does that mean? But it does reflect in some way that God's people will stand as minor judges under the lordship of King Jesus, the righteous judge, on the last day in the judgment on the wicked. Well, here we have the brother cutting down his brother in Obadiah. And the apostate in our world often takes two forms. I I suppose I should pause and qualify this word apostate. We don't use it today. But I think in the church we should. We don't use it because we want to be nice. And we don't like being mean with terms like apostate. But the best thing for us when we stumble and fall in sin is to have terminology that will help us assess our own spiritual walk. And apostasy is a word that helps us with that. Apostasy. Here's how John MacArthur summarizes it in a very helpful little blog post on the Grace to You website. 
He says, apostates are those who fall away from the true faith, abandoning what they formerly professed to believe. True Christians do not apostatize. Those who fall away into apostasy demonstrate that their faith was never real to begin with. I think that's a helpful definition that reflects 1 John chapter 2, which we've read with Peter earlier. True believers may stumble and fall into sin, but they will repent and come back to the Lord. But the apostate is one who proves they never had true faith because they do not repent and return. In this life, we can't see the difference, right? Someone might backslide for years and come back to the Lord on their deathbed. And that's what we should pray for. With every person who walks away from the faith, Lord, I did this, Some of, many of you are aware, the, the, the uh, well-known Christian writer from the 90s and early 2000s, Joshua Harris, declared himself an apostate. He was honest enough to use the term and define it for the people reading his blog post when he left the faith. My, my response to that, whenever I think of him, is to pray, Lord, may he not be an apostate. May he be wrong in his self-assessment. May your spirit draw him back. Maybe draw him for the first time to true faith. That should be our prayer for every person that we see who once claimed to be a believer, once had a place in the visible church, For every child born into a Christian home who grows up and leaves the church, our prayer should be, Lord, may they not be apostates. May they be your children and may you draw them to yourself. May they come to true faith and true repentance. That should be our prayer. But Esau in Scripture is God's favorite example of apostasy born in the covenant family circumcised on the eighth day because God commanded it notice I didn't say that the way Paul refers to being circumcised on the eighth day according to the law even before the law declared it God had told Abraham that Isaac was to be circumcised on the eighth day we see that in Genesis and I'm not seeing my note about the reference to that here, but you can find it when it refers to Isaac being circumcised. He was circumcised on the eighth day according to the word of God. Esau had everything outward going for him about the faith. He was raised in worship services with his family. He was raised making sacrifices. Even as he grew up, he still made some sacrifices. But they were all outward show. And he left the faith. And we need to be cautious about this ourselves. I think in the church today, we see two types of apostate. We see the Esau type. The Edom type. The Joshua Harris type. The one who abandons the faith publicly and seeks to harm those who still remain in the faith. Joshua Harris, not with violence, 
but by seeking to break down what people believe about God and the Bible, to tear down the faith. That is a spiritual version of what God is saying in Obadiah. Violence against your brother. Joshua Harris and others like him. I'm not trying to just pick on him. He, he's one that I think of and pray for so much because he had some wonderful books that he apparently hypocritically wrote. Without realizing it at the time, I think. But there's that violent type. There are a lot more, though, that are apostates who are quiet and polite. You go ahead and believe what you want to believe. I won't make trouble for the church. I'm just going to slip over here. But all of them, all of them turning from King Jesus and his rightful rule and will be judged. So how do we gauge ourselves? With what do we assess whether I'm a true believer or not? Because, dearly beloved, God wants you to have assurance. An entire book of the New Testament is written so that you might be assured that you are going to heaven. So that you might not wake up every morning thinking, am I going to hell? The book of Hebrews was given that you might be assured and confident that you are indeed saved. And yet that same book is the one that has the most to say about apostasy and those who walk away and will be judged. Here is one of the most simple ways to assess ourselves. It comes from Hebrews chapter 4 verse 2. It tells us what separates the apostate from the true believer. Both hear God's word declared. Both claim with their mouth to believe. Both attend worship. Both are part of the visible church. But Hebrews 4 verse 2 declares, The word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith. Not being mixed with faith. Now, I don't know many who have left the faith who said they didn't have faith at all. So the thing we must ask is what is faith according to the epistle of Hebrews? In what is faith placed if it is true saving faith? See, many who leave the faith, as well as many true believers who backslide, if they really assess their faith in that moment, they might have to say their faith was in morality, law-keeping, goodness. And the New Testament makes it very clear that that is nothing but dead legalism. It's dead. It will not save you on the last day. Others who leave the faith or are backslidden for a time have a faith in appearances. Specifically, my own appearance. I think that I look good enough. That could be literally that I dress nicely enough to attend worship. Or that my life is uh, well-ordered and my home, everything's in its place because cleanliness is next to godliness. 
or any number of other things, right? Appearance, how people see me. Well, they see me giving money to this this charity. They see me doing some work project in the community. They see me doing all these different things, but Christ says that that is nothing but faith that is a whitewashed tomb. It looks good on the outside, but isn't there just a rotting corpse on the inside? What about faith and feelings? That might be the most dangerous of all. Because your feelings for a while might tell you, oh, I love Jesus. I love the church. I love the gospel. If it's faith and feelings, the danger is feelings are superficial and ever-shifting. What about faith and faith itself? Those, those of you who know me well enough probably to hold up your hand when you said you knew I was going to preach three sermons on Obadiah. I'll also know that I, I, always, I always reflect back on, I consider every movie made in the late 90s had a line like this. I don't care what you believe in as long as you believe in something. Your faith doesn't have to be my faith as long as you have faith. That's empty, biblically speaking, and meaningless. Faith in faith. So what does Hebrews tell us? That we must assess ourselves based on faith in... What's the next word you say? Faith and faith can be so easy to say, isn't it? But it's not faith and faith. It's faith in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ alone. I am not saved by faith. I'm saved by grace, which comes from Christ. Faith is necessary, isn't it? It's an instrument. Or a vehicle that the Holy Spirit uses to unite your heart to the grace of Jesus Christ. But it is the grace, unmerited favor of Jesus Christ which saves you. Our faith must be in the covenant mediator, as the Old Testament would have put it. Our grace, our faith must be in the salvation of Jesus Christ on the cross, shed, shedding his blood for us. Friends, you are all destined for the day of judgment. All of us. And there are only two things that will be said as judgment on that last day. Some will be judged, condemned, and disciplined eternally according to Jesus himself in a lake of fire. The others will be judged acquitted, righteous, righteous only in Christ alone. Are you Esau or are you Jacob? 
Are you a true believer? Or are you one who only outwardly shows faith? We must take this seriously, for it is at the very heart of how we see Christ himself presented to us. I'm going to conclude this sermon by reading to you from Isaiah 63. A severe warning and a message of hope depending on where your faith is placed. Here, what Isaiah declares as he sees a vision of Jesus Christ, he writes, Who is this who comes from Edom with dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. See this vision of one coming out of Edom to Jerusalem. Who is it? Jesus Christ says in Isaiah 63, I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. But Jesus coming out of Edom, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads the winepress? What were you doing in Edom? That's the question, right? What were you doing in Edom? I, Christ says, have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is spattered on my garments and I have stained all my robes for the day of vengeance is in my heart. If you don't have faith in Jesus Christ, that's you he's talking about on the last day. Edom, crushed like a grape in a wine vat. Jesus has one more thought, though, in that verse. For the day of vengeance is in my heart, but the year of my redeemed has come. He's walking out of Edom where he has brought judgment. But where is he walking to? He's walking to Jerusalem where Isaiah sees him. The day of my redeemed has come. If you have faith in Christ, good news. In Obadiah chapter, I'm sorry, verse 16, we read of what his judgment will look like with some other colorful terminology. He will make all the nations drink from the cup of his wrath. Luke 22:42 As our savior came to the garden to approach the cross he cried out to his father father if it is your will take this cup from me He was talking about that same cup that Obadiah speaks of the cup of the wrath of God But once again he doesn't stop speaking there 
Father, take the cup of your vengeance from me. But not my will. Yours be done. And if your faith is in Christ, then your faith is in the one who on the cross drank the cup of God's wrath till there was not a single drag at the bottom of it for you so that you might never know his wrath and curse on the last day. Let's sing together, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. You'll find this in the hymnal on 257, singing of this King Jesus. 257, stand with me if you are able. Thank you.